Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 6, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into her own again, and little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. On and on wound the poor thread that had once been our drive. And finally, there was Mandalay. Mandalay, secretive and silent. Time could not mar the perfect symmetry of those walls. Moonlight can play odd tricks upon the fancy, and suddenly it seemed to me that light came from the windows. And then a cloud came upon the moon and hovered an instant like a dark hand before a face. The illusion went with it. I looked upon a desolate shell with no whisper of the past about its staring walls. We can never go back to Mandalay again. That much is certain. But sometimes, in my dreams, I do go back to the strange days of my life, which began for me in the south of France. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella. This is a podcast brought to you by the TTFIRN. That is the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast, now that we've gotten our feet under us and we're moving and we have momentum, if you can't tell by the title, it's all about books and literature. And each month, we alternate a choice of book or literature that we want to look at in depth and we have a great discussion, and we decide whether it is worthy of its either positive or negative reputation. Should it be read again, or should it be chucked out the window, breaking some glass? Well, with me, as always, this guy, who happens to be the squirrel to my moose, this is Tom Paneris. Hey, Stella. How are you doing? <laughs> hey, I am doing well. See, I brought it in. I, I made a promise. I made a vow, and I saw it through. Okay. Do you not know what the well, promises I'm talking about? 
hello? <laughs> it's been a long day. Okay. Yeah, it's a long day. Yeah, let me bring it back a little bit for you listeners, what this long day is. Now, first of all, I failed myself because Winter Storm Stella, <laughs> that's right, Winter Storm Stella, blasted through, and the north and northeast might have gotten a hit, but where we are, not so much. However, Tom got a little bit more than I did, so he had the day off. That's his quote-unquote long day, and I had to go to work. So you decide whether one of us had the long day. But no, what I'm talking about, Tom, is on Twitter, you said, how come we never made the connection of Moose Oh, that's Squirrel? right. And I felt like I had thoroughly failed myself and really moose everywhere because they're my favorite animal that I had never even thought of that because I come up with these really wacky things. And I said, I vow to next time. And here it is. So that's there you go. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, that's probably the highest and happiest we're going to be this entire episode. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, as I promised you listeners, I was going to punish Tom Penneries until he... Uh, put his act together and changed his tune. And uh, the first punishment book that I decided to go with was Rebecca. And I first would like to ask Tom, what is your history with this particular book besides it being a punishment that was forced upon you by myself? Uh, this is my history with this particular book. <laughs> I've never read this book before. I ha- I've never seen the Hitchcock movie either, even though I knew of it mm-hmm. it's just it is not something that was um that i'd ever come across in terms of literature or i like i said come across in film it was kind of in the back of my mind of the long list of films i probably should you know sit down and watch mm-hmm. among with another of other hitchcock and films etc but no i had i had never read this before um it's not exactly in my wheelhouse and so, yeah, so this is this is a new one for me. How about you? Yes, I have a very intimate history with it. Now, I will say that I knew that my, my mother had mentioned it to me before by saying that she had read it in high school. So I think in the back of my mind, there was always that mm. history with me. But there's actually, I have this connection with Diana Rigg. And <laughs> so when I was younger... From the Avengers? Yes, that Diana Rigg. So it, it all connects, I promise you, I promise you. So when I was younger, way back when, uh, like below 10, uh, PBS, which it still has Masterpiece Theater, but mm-hmm. if you ever watched PBS in like the 90s when they, on Sunday evenings when they would have their like mystery film or whatever it would be, they had this yeah. really interesting ana- animation that would lead it, it'd be like two minutes long or so, maybe a minute. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does this sound familiar? It sounds familiar, but I didn't watch it on a regular basis. Okay. So it was kind of spooky. I mean, it was black and white animation. Um, okay. And it was, like, showing, like, masterpiece, and there'd be, like, lightning flashing, like, very gothic. And there would always be this woman that was, like, sprawled out. It was, like, a, either on a couch or a tombstone. I realize those are two very different things. And I remember, like, her um, her scarf would flow away, and she would always go, oh, oh, you know, because she was clearly in distress and so i was not allowed to watch these masterpiece series plus you know they're like nine eight nine o'clock so i should be in bed so i was just allowed to watch that intro and then i was shuffled (laughs) off to bed so the connection there is diana rigg was the person during those years to introduce the masterpiece theater film at the time okay and i remember my mother saying something like 
she played Mrs. Danvers, and I'm like, who the devil is Mrs. Danvers? And and she would introduce, you know, who this person is and uh, as this villain, and she would mention Rebecca. And it wasn't until either the end of high school or just the beginning of college that I decided to finally pick up Rebecca. It is on Rory's reading list. That was one of the reasons. Uh, so that was the first time that I read it, and that's my like long connection with it. It's all through Diana Rigg, which I will talk about the, the film adaptations. And then this is, of course, the, the second time I read it, which, again, I really like rereading as long as it's a book that I like because I feel like I catch more the second time. I feel like, mm. you know, with age, I think uh, we're more mature in our understanding and knowledge and our life experiences. So I think we get something new out of some uh, out of any work that we read a second time. So that's my connection with Rebecca. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on on how rereading because because my list for for our show is literally things that I read in junior high and high school, right. and and a number of them I hadn't read since junior high or high school. There's a few that I have because either I've taught them over the years or they're just favorites that I keep coming back to. But you're right, like you know, you do get something out of it every. Every repeated time. I mean, I reread small bits and pieces of this as I was prepping. Mm-hmm. Um, I reread the I reread the very end, yeah, just to get a little more of the of of the the scene in my mind, and and caught a just caught a, just a few more details. You know, nothing like hugely important, but you know, in that in that reread, like you know, you you do get a little more little more out of it, and and I that's why I always recommend. You know, if you like if you like a, a a particular piece of literature, like a reread is is definitely uh, is definitely on order. Like years later, because you 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 gain more perspective, you you feel yourself drawn to one character over another sometimes, mm-hmm. in a way that you weren't back when you were um, when you were younger. I, I find that with movies and television shows as well. You see, in some cases. And I think uh, I know why the Cage Bird sings was probably a really good example of this. You see the more adult things in the book that you missed right. when you were younger, because there was a lot of that that I missed when I was in high school. I don't know if my teacher was glossing over it, if it was my own naivete about you know sex mm. and, and, and things in general. But you know, some of the more adult things in some of the things that you read when you're younger, you do pick up because you're finally more. Mature enough to to either either handle it or understand it. So. Absolutely, yeah. And and what I really like about this podcast too, if I'm to to brag about it and to brag about you as a co-host, is that I learn even more being able to discuss it with someone and being able to discuss it with you. And I think that's what makes this a lot of fun because we are reading it, but it's not just like oh that was really good and then putting it down. We get to hop on you know these uh difficult topics sometimes or you know have disagreements or agree or delve in deeper and everything which i think is great well and to to blow sunshine your way um (laughs) what does that even mean i I, to pay you a compliment we're like very like-minded in that sort of like we want to sit down and and dissect and and analyze some like because we've done it with comics right, right, so yep. much too and and movies and tv and and you know and and it, and it, you know especially like you know we we could and and i know we've talked about getting guests on mm-hmm. you know enough uh, uh, further down the road when we feel we've got you know we, we've done this for long enough 
and we have other friends who do that. I mean, my wife is another person who's like that, you know, where, where you like sitting down, you like sitting down with each other and talking about these things because we have that sort of that, that mental, like we're firing on those cylinders. Whereas I have other friends who you, know, you talk movies, but it's, it's or, or, or pop culture or books or anything, but it's less of the, this sort of, real questioning of the book and trying to critically analyze it and discuss themes and stuff like we are like as if we are in class or something Mm -hmm. and more of repeating funny lines to each other. And, you know, not that those conversations aren't worth it because they're fun, but you know, it's, it's a totally different level. And I think that the fact that we get each other so much really, really is, is cool. Yeah, absolutely. We're six months into this. Who, Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? Well, I was yeah. surprised we made it to episode three, so. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think that was the episode I said, look, we made it this far. <laughs> yeah, so let me talk about the author, Daphne du Maurier, yes. as well okay. as the book. Um, I did skip the intro to the book, but I thought that I would sort of nestle it into talking about Daphne. She was actually born into a creative and successful family. Her grandfather was an artist uh, and writer, George du Maurier. Her father was Gerald du Maurier, the most famous actor-manager and matinee idol of his day. And her mother, Muriel Beaumont, was also an actress. So she's got a lot of creative juices in her DNA. For a long time, Daphne was described as a romantic novelist, though some people think this is either misleading or selling herself short because she wrote dark and gothic and edgy novels and short stories that had unexpected twists or suspenseful endings, which we could potentially see here in Rebecca. As for Daphne herself, she was seen as a solitary and private person. She liked routine, and she tried to avoid the complication of any crossover between her friends, which I thought that was interesting. In order to keep her relationship simple, I think in this description I saw a little bit of the narrator herself who sort of got nervous when she had to pay calls to different people. But she was also seen as very kind. She helped other people in a quiet way. And a site that I saw that sort of dedicated to Du Maurier and that family said that she was both Rebecca, brave, strong, loving the outdoors, walking, riding, sailing, and so on, and also the second Mrs. DeWinter, shy, unsure of herself, and hiding herself away. So it makes it seem like the author herself was pretty complex. So when Daphne was about 12 years old, she started to read the Brontes, which I think we can probably really see some similarities here between this uh, and especially Jane Eyre. She began with Mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights, uh, but soon she was enjoying all of their novels and poetry. She returned again to the Bronte sisters. She wasn't really interested in reading modern novels, but I think she would always uh, go back to the Brontes. So Rebecca was published in 1938 and it was one of her most successful works it was immediately a hit when it was published and it went on to sell nearly three million copies between 1938 and 1965 and has since then never gone out of print and it's been adapted for both stage and screen several times we don't really talk about film adaptations here and i think this is certainly a chance probably you know to somehow do a crossover with Rob Kelly at some point. I I think that's certainly in the back of our minds. But I will say that the 1940 Hitchcock film is really wonderful. And I know that Du Maurier was a little bit nervous of this because Hitchcock had made Jamaica Inn, which was another one of her novels. And it was very different from the source material. So she was nervous about him taking on Rebecca. But it actually stays very close to the novel. And, I mean, the cast 
Oh my goodness, Laurence Olivier as Maxim, Joan Fontaine mm-hmm. as the second Mrs. De Winter, Judith Anderson, who is in a childhood favorite film of mine called The Red House. Not many people, if any, are going to know that. Maybe Rob Kelly. No, she, I'm not. Yeah, she is Mrs. Danvers. Danvers? Yep, and then George Sanders plays... So you've got a great cast there. And then the one I was talking about was the 1997 TV miniseries, and it had Charles Dance as Maxim. People would most likely mm-hmm. associate his name now with Game of Thrones, uh, who played okay. the elder, the eldest uh, Lannister. Uh, Amelia Fox was the second Mrs. De Winter, And then Diana Rigg, this is where it all goes, was Mrs. Danvers. So those are the two. I think the 1940 Hitchcock certainly is better than the 1997. But again, Diana Rigg as Mrs. Danvers, I think, was certainly uh, something to, to behold for sure. Uh, so just to check those out if you're interested, if you really like the, uh, the Rebecca, to check those adaptations out. As for Manderley, because this is going to be one of my points that I bring up, she, as a child, visited Milton Hall, Cambridgeshire, which was home of the Fitzwilliam family. And this influenced many of the descriptions of Manderley, especially the interior. And then, as an adult, her Cornish home near Fowey, which was called Menabilly, <laughs> I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing these English people, was influential in her descriptions of the exterior setting. Uh, and like Menabilly, Manderley could not be seen from the road. So there are some influences, uh, not only of what she was reading and growing up with at the time, but also where she was living in her writing. And then Tom brought some fun trivia, <laughs> according to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Source of all great information. Yes. Do you want to talk about uh, this fun trivia? Yeah, yeah. So um, basically, it, it has a it has a role in the Second World War. Uh, one of the one edition of the book was used by the Germans in the Second World War as a key to a book code. Sentences would be made using single words in the book, referred to by page number, line, and position in the line. One copy was kept at Rommel's headquarters, and the other was carried by German. Abwar agents in, uh, infiltrated into Cairo after crossing Egypt by car, guided by Count Laszlo Almasi. Uh, the code was never used, however, because the radio section of HQ was captured in a skirmish, and hence the Germans suspected the code had been compromised. Uh, this use of the book is referred to in Ken Follett's novel The Key to Rebecca, where a fictional spy does use it to pass critical information to Rommel. So I just thought that was very, very interesting. It because, is interesting, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think Rebecca of all novels to use? You're talking the 1940s. This was out in 1938. So, and uh, I think you had said there were something like between 1938 and 1965, it sold three million copies. Right, yeah. So it was probably ubiquitous okay. and probably very, very easy to get a hold of. Okay. And it would, it, it's, it was just something that was probably, it would probably not be questioned. Mm-hmm. If That's somebody true. had yeah. a copy of that, you know, it, it would be like if an English spy were bringing something to the French resistance and needed a copy of the Holy Bible on them or something, you know, like yeah. something that was like, you know, like, like, you know, we found this on this person, you know, oh, it's not you know, like whatever it's, it's, you know, how many people have that book? So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I'm pretty sure the Bible is more popular than Rebecca, but I was just trying to come up with an example. No, I understood. Yeah, I guess you're right. That's probably ease of access. I was thinking, I was, I yeah, guess yeah. I was getting a little too nerdy and deep. I was wondering, like, huh, I wonder if there's something about Rebecca that drew the Nazis to it. 
<laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but you're probably right. Let's go with the simpler reason. Uh, so that's the background. And now is the time when Tom takes a little bit of a nap as he wraps himself in an afghan and rocks on his little old man rocking chair. And I'm going to do the plot synopsis. While working as the companion to a rich American woman on holiday in Monte Carlo, the unnamed narrator, and she's unnamed throughout, a naive woman in her early 20s, becomes acquainted with a wealthy Englishman, Maximilian, a.k.a. Maxim, de Winter. He is a widow and about age 42. After a fortnight of courtship, she agrees to marry him and, after the wedding and quick honeymoon, accompanies him to his mansion in Cornwall, the beautiful West Country estate, Manderley. Mrs. Danvers, the sinister housekeeper, was profoundly devoted to the first Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca, who died in a boating accident about a year before Maxim and the second Mrs. De Winter met. She continually attempts to undermine the new Mrs. De Winter psychologically, subtly suggesting to her that she will never attain the beauty, urbanity, and charm her predecessor possessed. Whenever the new Mrs. De Winter attempts to make changes at Manderley, Mrs. Danvers describes how Rebecca ran it when she was alive. Remember the little Cupid? Each time Mrs. Danvers does this, she implies that the new Mrs. De Winter lacks the experience and knowledge necessary for running an important estate. Cowed by Mrs. Danvers' imposing manner, the new mistress simply caves in. She is soon convinced that Maxim regrets his impetuous decision to marry her and is still deeply in love with the seemingly perfect Rebecca. The climax occurs at Manderley's annual costume ball. Mrs. Danvers manipulates the protagonist, our unnamed female character, I was about to say heroine, well I guess we'll have to discuss that, into wearing a replica of the dress shown in a portrait of one of the former inhabitants of the estate. The same costume worn by Rebecca to much acclaim shortly before her death. However, our narrator does not know about this. The narrator has a drummer announce her entrance using the name of the lady in the portrait, Caroline De Winter. When the narrator shows Maxim the dress, he gets very angry at her and orders her to change. Shortly after the ball, Mrs. Danvers reveals her contempt for our heroine, believing she is trying to replace Rebecca and reveals her deep, unhealthy obsession with the dead woman. Mrs. Danvers tries to get Mrs. De Winter to commit suicide by encouraging her to jump out of the window. However, she is thwarted at the last moment by the disturbance occasioned by a nearby shipwreck. A diver investigating the condition of the wrecked ship's hull also discovers the remains of Rebecca's boat, with her body still on board. Dun, dun, dun. This discovery causes Maxim to confess the truth to the second Mrs. De Winter. He tells her how his marriage to Rebecca was nothing but a sham, how from the very first days husband and wife loathed each other. Rebecca, Maxim reveals, was a cruel and selfish woman who manipulated everyone around her into believing her to be the perfect wife and a paragon of virtue. She repeatedly taunted Maxim with sordid tales of her numerous love affairs. The night of her death, she told Maxim that she was pregnant with another man's child, which she would raise under the pretense that it was Maxim's and he would be powerless to stop her. In a rage, he shot her, then disposed of her body by placing it in her boat and seeking the boat at sea. The second Mrs. De Winter thinks little of Maxim's murder confession, but instead is relieved to hear that Maxim loves her and not Rebecca. 
Rebecca's boat is raised and it is discovered that it was deliberately sunk. An inquest brings a verdict of suicide. However, Rebecca's first cousin and lover, Jack Favell, attempts to blackmail Maxim, claiming to have proof that Rebecca could not have intended suicide based on a note she sent to him the night she died. It is revealed that Rebecca had had an appointment with a Dr. Baker in the outskirts of London shortly before her death, presumably to confirm her pregnancy. When the doctor is found, after much trials, he reveals that Rebecca had been suffering from cancer and would have died within a few months. Furthermore, due to the malformation of her uterus, she could never have been pregnant. Maxim assumes that Rebecca, knowing that she was going to die, manipulated him into killing her quickly. Mrs. Danvers had said at the inquiry that Rebecca feared nothing except dying a lingering death. Maxim feels a great sense of foreboding and insists on driving through the night to return to Manderley. However, before he comes in sight of the house, it is clear from a glow on the horizon and windborne ashes that it is ablaze. Whoo, boy! So, yeah, I know, lots of stuff <laughs> that happened there. My first question is always an important question to ask. Did you like Rebecca? Yeah, the character or the book? <laughs> <laughs> no, Sir, if I you like liked the book, Rebecca I'm... the character, this will be our last episode together. <laughs> no, I, I didn't like the character. Well, I liked the character of Rebecca in the sense that I liked her role. You know, yeah, like yeah, I didn't yeah. like her, but I liked the character yeah, in a sense. Yeah. No, I really, I did like this. It, it was, it's slow at first. It's a little bit slow. Uh, there, there are some times where it seems like it didn't bore me, but like <laughs> Moray wanted me to get the sense of how the second Mrs. De Winter was bored sitting around Manderley. She did a really good job with it because there are there are points where she's basically sitting around this house, and you're just kind of like, all right, <laughs> like get on with it, but. It's this slow build to this this um, weird, mysterious woman who's haunting, whose memory is like haunting everything in there, and and Mrs. Danvers being this uh, manipulative, yes, yeah, sinister is a great word for it. And when we had that scene at the party, I was like, oh snap! Like I did not see that coming. I, I should have seen it coming. Like in the back of my mind, I was like, "She is messing with her." Like I, I knew it, but at the same time, like I was kind of led along as well, and so I was actually genuinely surprised when it was just like, "Oh my god!" Like wh- the just the, the horrible thing she did to this woman, it's because she had this obsession with her. It was really, it's really, really enjoyable. Uh, I thought it was really good. I failed. This was supposed to be a punishment book. No, no, I am glad, though, that you like it. I always, um, maybe it's just me, but I actually get nervous. Like, oh, I hope he likes it. I guess it's like a middle schooler, you know. I hope he likes me, that kind of thing. I, I could tell uh, when we converse back and forth with texts, and I would say, like, what did, and you're like, she just broke a Cupid. You know, like, that was the most exciting thing that had happened. Oh, the or, Cupid, yeah. And then you said something sarcastically, like, oh, but wait, there's going to be a ball. And then I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> that's when it all happens. And then I could tell at the end that you were really, like, once things were revealed and it really picked up, I could tell that you were enjoying it, and it was, and, and I agree that at the beginning yeah. with the setup, and of course, I think just 
the woman that, you know, she has to be with all the time, the American, mm -hmm. you know, you're just like, oh, get this over with. But yeah, yeah I, I agree. Once I think that ball happens, it, everything starts to fall into place and goes so quickly. And I don't know if I'll ever pick a book that I don't like. Cause, um, yeah. So I, I definitely liked it and uh, I liked it enough to, to read it again. And I actually really like gothic horrors or or gothic literature so this is one of my favorites there are two other ones but i shan't reveal them because there are other punishment books that i could bring upon you <laughs> so, i had yes believe it or not it reminded me of the great gatsby oh, at points okay. oh and what we could, i could probably make some comparison in, in 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 here um there was a little it just it i and i like you said she she didn't read a lot she said she didn't read a lot of modern stuff so i can't imagine she read f scott fitzgerald but there were bits and pieces where it where I was reminded of uh, Fitzgerald. I'm not well versed in in gothic stories and things like that, um, gothic novels and things like that. I guess outside of Edgar Allan Poe, mm -hmm. who was American, so it doesn't fit into the British Gothic era. This sort of Victorian ish era here uh, the only bronte i've read was withering heights and i am not a fan of withering heights i've not i have yet to read jane Eyre. there is another novel that that i probably i think i'm going to save for just to bring up later in conversation um because of it, i i thought about it when i was thinking about one of the questions you asked okay. that i believe falls into the gothic or victorian yeah, sort of yeah. era that this part bits and pieces of this reminded me of as Absolutely. well well i'm glad that you liked it yeah my first question is actually because the novel begins with Manderley with that, that great quote, last night I dreamt of Manderley, and it ends with Manderley in something that I love in literature, which are ring compositions. Mm -hmm. Do you see Manderley as merely a setting, or do you see it as a character in the novel? Both. I think it represents the trappings of this sort of aristocratic society in which she is strived to be part of and because it's uh, something and something i'll bring up later is it's it's so detached from the rest of the world but at the same time it is in as a character in itself it's it's an extension purpose almost purposely an extension of rebecca which mrs i don't know if rebecca made that that way or if Mrs. Danvers did, because Mrs. Danvers in her obsession with her wanted everything to stay the same way that Rebecca had it. And a lot of the middle of the book is the second Mrs. De, is the I'm just going to say the narrator because the second Mrs. De Winter it's gonna is going to get old. <laughs> that poor lady. So is, yeah. our, is the narrator is, is, is her is her essentially her interaction with Manderley, uh, you know, the the getting to know the grounds and and the, the incident with the cupid is is an interesting one because she's kind of just thumbing through drawers and the, you know yeah. like this this thing has a character it has a history it has a story that it's trying to tell her and then mrs danvers is trying to preserve so yeah it is essentially i think in a way it is it is its own character mm -hmm. even though i think it's also a very very symbolic type of character as Absolutely. well. Yeah, I agree with you that it is very much both. Um, I think what a place to set up and, and there are all these secrets there and uh, it, it seems uh, a little foreboding just to be there and it takes so long to get through and, and the description of the plants and 
I feel like the drive seems so long when she's, and you can't see from the road and things like that. And then even yeah. the sea and, and being able to hear the sea and how beautiful that must be, but also how intense and scary, especially during the storm scene. So I think uh, it's a perfect setting for a, a gothic novel like this. But I also see it as a character, just like I, as a, I guess my only comic reference on this one, I think I must have one each time. As I see Gotham City, a character of, you know, in Batman, yeah. uh, because it affects the people around it. Just as you were saying, it's very much an extension of Rebecca. And I think, unfortunately, this is why the narrator constantly feels like uh, Maxim doesn't love her and is always thinking of Rebecca because Rebecca is all around her and all around both of them with, with everything. And uh, I think it's also, I mean, you could potentially put a person in there because Maxim cares greatly for the estate, not because of anything Rebecca did, but just, I think, um, out of a sense of duty and honor and, and being the person who has now inherited the estate. And that was one of the reasons why he kept up his bargain with Rebecca, however terrible it was, is that she would take care of Manderley. And the threat was that, you know, if there was a divorce, then Manderley would sort of be in shambles. So that's why I also think it's uh, a great character, because I think he very much wants to protect it. But it's also like this negative force on all of the other people, which is what you were getting at as well. Yeah, the, this and this, um, like I said, the sort of he's part of this upper crust of society that is trapped in his own role that he's expected to fulfill. And he never seems completely comfortable with that role. Um, and you're right. Like Rebecca trapped him into that. And then with his, with our narrator, she assumes a lot and she's fed a lot Mm -hmm. by Mrs. Danvers. And in this marriage, she never talks to her husband, which is a trope of other pieces of literature like yeah. this. I, I have a doll's house by Henry Gibson on my list somewhere, and and I've taught that play like a million times at this point. Uh, but miscommunication, lack of communi- direct communication between the characters is the key to the complication. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and it's. I think that is eighteen seventies or eighteen nineties or something. So it's you know the idea that you know husband and wife don't speak to each other. In fact, I think at one point I actually texted you and said I don't think this marriage was ever consummated. Yes, you did say that because it's so loveless. Mm-hmm. I don't know what she's doing there. Yeah. at at first. At first, and I don't know if he knows what she's doing there at first. In fact, I think it's the destruction of the house that's going to save their marriage, in a sense. So I will say, because I countered that, I hadn't started reading it when you texted me about the consummation, but then I did text you because she mentions that he was both in my edition it was on page 69 for he was gayer than I had thought more tender than I had dreamed youthful and ardent in a hundred happy ways not the maxim I had first met not the stranger who sat alone at the table in the restaurant staring before him wrapped in his secret self and and later on she does call him a lover as well um, so I feel okay. like they consummated at least on their honeymoon what they're doing though mm-hmm. in the house I think that again I, I feel like this house could be potentially 
poisonous um, for many reasons, honestly, yes. because I think outside of it, they were completely fine. I think there are moments when even before they're mm-hmm. uh, when they're just, I guess, spending time together and they're not really in a relationship that he sort of drifts off. So it's not like it's always happy. But I feel like their times away from it are, are much brighter than when they come home afterwards. And it just seems like really sad because that's when she starts falling into her musings like, what have I done? Oh, man, it's this Rebecca person and that yeah. kind of thing, uh, unfortunately. But you're absolutely right about the communication, which there was a good quote, if I can find it, on page 275. <laughs> she said, why didn't you tell me the time we've wasted when we might have been together all these weeks and days? He says, you yes. are so aloof, always <laughs> wandering into the garden with Jasper, going off on your own. You never came to me like this. Why didn't you tell me, I whispered. Why didn't you tell me? I thought you were unhappy, bored, he said. I'm so much older than you. You seem to have more to say to Frank than you ever had to me. You were funny with me, awkward, shy. How could I come to you when I knew you were thinking about Rebecca, I said. How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? So I, I think that gets to the heart of like this missing. They really aren't talking, as you said. Yeah. Uh, and for whatever reason, I think they both have their own hangups and not one of them is at fault. I think both of them are at fault. Uh, but honestly, a lot yeah. of the issues in this novel probably could have been fixed by some good old fashioned communication. <laughs> mm-hmm. Had this been 30 or 40 years later, it could have been like one of those suburban divorce stories or something, you know, like it, it just that conversation I see in a book like um, Ordinary People or, or, or something like that. That's, you know, but uh, but of the latter part of the 20th century, because divorce, this was not that wasn't as common, um, you know, back back yeah, then. Absolutely. Sticking with the subject of Manderley, why do you think Mrs. Danvers burns it at the end? Huh. Um, I wonder. I, I, I wrote down jealousy. Mm. Is she mad at Rebecca because she was of the opinion that Rebecca told her everything, and she found out when all is revealed. She finds out that Rebecca was keeping secrets even right. from her, and that I don't want to say it crushed her. But it definitely wounded her because she felt superior in that way to Maxim and and anybody else. Maybe it's rage against the narrator because the narrator, for lack of a better word, she wins. Mm. Even though I don't think the narrator sees it that way, I can see Mrs. Danvers seeing it that way. And this is her lighting the room on fire, lighting the ma- lighting, the, spreading gasoline around the room, lighting the match, and walking right. out. What's interesting is that you get the burning of Manderley in the last, like it's like the last page and a half, it, or page. It's it's like at the very tail end of the book, he gets this weird feeling because they're gonna st- they were they were coming back from London and they were gonna stop overnight at a, at a B and B or whatever. And then we're going to go continue on in the morning. And he called over there and talked to Frank, who was the, uh, the I think Frank's basically the butler, the main housekeeper or whatever, uh, manservant, said that Mrs. Danvers cleared out. Isn't he more the agent of the house? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. So he, but she clears yeah. out. Yep. Not like she's gone. Not like, you know, she never, she left and never mm-hmm. came back. No, she took 
all of her things with her and left and nobody has seen her. And that gives Maxim a very odd feeling to the point where he tells his wife, we have to get back mm-hmm. home. Like, and she's like, well, can we stop for a tea? <laughs> I'm very thirsty. We stop for tea <laughs> and they stop for tea yeah. And then they and and they come over the horizon and she keeps because the, the ending is a little the uh, part of the reason that I read the ending a couple of times is because I actually had to read the ending like twice because she's in an, it she's in and out of sleep through much of the car ride home and she keeps having dreams she, she keeps describing right. her dreams and then at the end she's fully awake and the state's on fire so or, so we never actually see Mrs. Danvers set the fire. And it's really by reading between the lines that she set the right. fire, that we know she set right. the fire, because it would make sense. Because I don't think Favell would be one to do yeah. that. No, and, and he wouldn't have been able to. I mean, if they are going nonstop. Yeah, he wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have beat them home. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe she. I don't. She was angry at somebody, yeah. and it could have been all of them, including right. Rebecca. Yeah, I think I, I think it's certainly a way to cleanse of Rebecca. I think because Manderley, in a sense, very much symbolizes her. Like it's everywhere for her, and and mm-hmm. everywhere Mrs. Danvers turns, you know, Rebecca has done something with it, and it it's all goes back to her. And so I think destroying that destroys memories of Rebecca potentially. Whether she's angry at her, or it's one of those situations where if I can't have her, no one can situation. Which yeah, I, which yeah, I think yeah. is very apropos in this sense, just the way that she talks about her in, in a very uh, sort of puts her up on a godlike pedestal. It could, I think you're absolutely right that it's also a punishment for Maxim if he does care about Mandroy, as I believe he does, or at least his duties and responsibilities to it, and how it represents more than him, but you know, the whole De Winter tribe then, you know, she's sort of getting back at him. I almost wonder in the back of my mind, what did Favelle tell her? Did he tell her the truth? Like, he could have probably goaded her into doing some, you know, lying to her and saying, yeah. like, I'm still pretty sure that Maxim killed her, uh, which I wouldn't put it past him because even at the end, he might have accepted that, Rebecca was sick, but I think he was still looking at Maxim with a side eye, you know, thinking mm-hmm. you still had, you were still involved with this somehow, and he didn't completely let that to rest. And and I think that Mrs. Danvers clearly there was a special relationship between her and Favell that um, she would have probably trusted or believed anything that he said. So I do wonder how that conversation yeah. went when he called her. I don't know if he would have told her to do that mm. though. No, I think that it was yeah, per, yeah. She does not strike me as the type of person who needs somebody to tell her to right. be evil. Yeah, I just wonder what he told her. Like, what what yeah. form of the truth did? Oh he yeah, tell? yeah, 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 yeah. Ironically, though, I think that on some level, the destruction of Manderley sets both the narrator and and, and Maxim Absolutely. free. Yeah, which is not what which is obviously not what Mrs. Danvers' intention mm-hmm. was. Her intention was to destroy. You know, but like you said. Maxim was more devoted to his sense of responsibility, mm-hmm. and that happened to be his duty toward Manderley because it was in the family than he was toward Rebecca or the house itself. And even Rebecca was not dedicated to Manderley. Right. You know, she didn't love the house. The house was a means right. to an end. And, and what the house gave her, basically the social status yeah. and the ability to, yeah. Mrs. Danvers, on the other hand, was very devoted to the house because of Rebecca. Right, yeah. 
you said the narrator and Maxim are, are freed from the burning, which I completely agree with you. But do you think they are happy at the end slash beginning? I say that because it <laughs> the beginning is really post the burning of Manderley, but you you don't realize it at the time. Do you think yeah. they're happy? Think okay. so. Now I have to go back and reread the first chapter. <laughs> yeah. I have to get because like last night I dreamt of Manderley. Yeah. What's your thought on it? I'll skim that while yeah. you while you um, talk because I, I I just realized that I, I probably should go just go back. I feel like happiness is not in the cards for Maxim. I think that he is a character that uh, has been beaten down a great deal, uh, whether it's because of Rebecca or the his own doing. Because of course he killed Rebecca, that he can't be happy perhaps because he feels like he doesn't deserve it so i think the best we could say is that he can be content with the situ like with the circumstances that they have i i certainly think that there's a burden has been lifted off of him now that manderley is gone and he's not constantly surrounded with the thought of rebecca but even there are moments when the narrator uh during the present time will catch him staring off into space and clearly he's in a reverie which happens i feel like frequently uh throughout the novel anyway so you kind of wonder what's what's been going on i think our narrator is certainly happier than she was at manderley and i think there's already a swift change in her in her attitude or her feelings once she finds out that he hated Rebecca because I think there was all that pressure on her that like she'll never be loved and he even like never really said you know I love you like there was that uh, uh, that moment that it happened when he said I love you it was like oh the dams burst loose the damn burst. <laughs> yeah. And I was happy. Um, so I think she's uh, contented as well. I think contented, but more on the side of happy, just being with Max and being away. I think closer to what it was like on their honeymoon. But I think there's also some pressure because they can't be in social situations, it seems. It seems like it's just them. They're going at, to hotels that are smaller so that they're not running into people that would gossip about them because if they were to run up against mrs van hopper again you know clearly you know after <laughs> they left the room she'd be like oh did you hear about those two so i it's a it's a tough situation i don't know like i think if i were to summarize i don't know if maxim can be happy i think the best that we can hope for this couple is that they're contented but i do think that our narrator is is slightly happy uh now that everything's gone I'll I'll agree with that. I think that happiness might be too extreme of a word, extreme. especially with Maxim. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. You're right. She she is happy to be away from all of that because even she she wonders what Danvers and Favell are doing now in the very very beginning of the book. So she she for, you're right that the sort of cyclical thing that comes back at the beginning and the end and, and Manderley as she describes it at the beginning is overgrown she doesn't describe it as a burned out husk or anything right. um, so she doesn't completely telegraph the fire but it's overgrown it's nobody lives there it's a it's a ghost it's a shell you know and and um, but Mac, Maxim yeah you're right he something's missing I get at the same time he's not sad yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's a sense of contentment. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna completely agree with you on that. Do you think justice was served at the end with with that, how everything uh, went down and that Maxim got off for murdering? He he was not judged. I guess. Here's the thing: I don't know how likable any of the characters in this novel are. Mm. Like, 
they're good characters. Oh, yeah. Interesting. But, like, I don't sympathize with Rebecca. I don't, you know. I, I'd be I, concerned if you did, sir. <laughs> like, Mrs. Danvers obviously is the villain. Um, yeah. You know, aside from the various people in the help who really are not central to the plot, you know, Favel is is seedy. I think the only character I actually like was, was B, her uh, sister-in-law. Oh, yeah. I thought she was pretty. I, I thought she was fun because, I, yeah. the, granted, she hated Rebecca as well, but – but I thought she was fun. But other, but she's she's like a she's like a secondary character. She doesn't have any, you know, aside from being there every once in a while and, and being one of the few people that the narrator feels that she can talk to, yeah. Um, or the few people the narrator likes. But even the narrator, I'm like the narrator is so wishy washy half the time. Yeah. And Maxim, so Maxim in a sense does get what's coming to him because if he got locked away for murder, yeah, he pays for a crime. But at the same time. I don't think it's as as much of a blow to him as a character as is the burning of his house because he had identified so much with the responsibility he had uh, with the house. And with her, it's – I don't know. I, you see, I don't know if she what she has coming to her unless it's the reality that she eventually has to face that she's married to this man and no longer has you know the estate that she was that she was a part of. So yeah, I I think on some level justice is served, yeah. Because I don't want Favel to win, right? Because that's yeah. Rebecca wins, yeah. But at the same time, he does he does get away with murder. He does, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on a literal sense, like no justice literally is served because yeah. he should be. Yeah, he should be in jail. Obviously, he killed her. You know, the positive way to think is that it was just assisted suicide. Because clearly she was goading him into killing her because she didn't want to go out and um, just wither away with, with cancer and everything. Um, so it was euthanasia, you know? He was helping her out like Dr. Kevorkian. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes? Yeah, yeah. She goads him into it. I just yeah. It's just not – it's not them – Riding off into the sunset. No. You know, it, it's yeah. not even it's not even Thelma and Louise, <laughs> you know, where we're going out on our own terms here. Uh, it's not Andy DeFriends and Morgan Fairchild's character, Red, at the end of the Shawshank Redemption. You know, it's oh, not it's yeah. not anything like this. It's these two people by the end of the novel are meant to be together. Right. But in a way that they are essentially companions to each other and they mm-hmm. are going to have to deal with the honesty that is now part of their relationship as opposed yep. to mm-hmm. they're not going to be lovebirds, yeah. but, but they, they, they'll never leave each other. And they have to live with what happened. Yes. I, I think it would be uh, insincere to have them just like everything is washed away and they're all happy at the very end of the novel. Like that, that mm-hmm. would – I think for me, I would not be able to accept that because I don't think that's what these characters are. So I think in a sense, them having to live with everything that has gone before them, all of that history and having that burden and carrying it, in a sense, I feel like that is part of the justice. Um, yeah. Because they, he didn't shoot her and like feel glad about it. I, I guess there actually there is a sense of like him sort of being relieved that it's all over, but clearly it has weighed him down, and he's you know. I don't think he's a sociopath. Um, no, no. So, yeah, so I, I think in a sense justice is served. But on a literal sense, no, he should be in jail. But you're absolutely right that who wants Favel to win because he just was a swarmy character that 
<laughs> I don't think anyone should like. And, you know, if he wins, Rebecca wins. And even though she, she's the titular character, she should not be the winner in the end of this. So. No, no. And and maybe that, the fact that it's going to have, they have to live with this for the rest of their lives yeah. is what makes the first line of the novel make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, last night I dreamt of Manderley. Yeah. That he's not a sociopath. He's just going to try to repress it, mm-hmm. which is different. And uh, she can repress it by just living in a state of denial about it. Yeah. I think she's clearly in the state of denial that her husband's a murderer. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's not as cut and dry in the sense of you're this monstrous murderer. I mean, yeah. consider the circumstances and who he killed and the circumstances under which he killed her. Right. It's not justifiable. I don't know. It's it's very gray. It is gray. Yeah. Black yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you there. I keep thinking of in this discussion, I guess this is bad, but I keep thinking of Logan and there's just this really great scene where Wolverine is talking to X23 and she was saying that, you know, I've killed people and he said you're going to have to live with that with all the people you've killed and she said, but some of them I've wanted to kill and he said even so you're going to have to live with that. And I just feel like this in a sense is like it like he's just going to have to live with it this entire time and because she mm-hmm. is his lifelong companion now, the narrator is also going to have to live with all of this. So, as much as they can run away and be away from Manderley, I think it's still going to exist and and weigh them down to a certain extent. So. Okay. There's my second comic reference. Three if you count extreme, <laughs> but no one will get that uh, outside of our little friend group. Yeah. I do want to talk about the narrator. Okay. Um, why does our poor narrator remain nameless throughout the entire novel? Because she has no identity. <laughs> because she, because the, through the entire novel, she is associated with somebody else. Because mm. she starts the novel off... As Miss Van Hopper, yep. Hopper's uh, maid, assistant, companion. Companion, come on. She's if she was an evil person, could she be the Mrs. Danvers to Miss Van Hopper? Oh gosh! And then she's Maxim's husband, the wife. She's husband, the wife. (laughs) She's not. She's never a person in herself, and. If she's putting, you know, she's she's working for rich people who don't really see the people below them as people in that regard. Especially Mr. Van Hopper, I don't think really sees her as a person in a sense. She's, you know, like yeah. and 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 I and and the same thing. Like I mean, Maxim, Maxim, I think does, but at the same time, again, we talked about the miscommunication between them. The fact that their marriage is so loveless when they're once they're back at Manderley. And then everybody who is of the establishment there at Manderley, like, you know, of, of either the upper crust and then Mrs. Danvers, who wants to be part of that, kind of condescends to her. Yeah. Except for probably B. I mean, there's very few people. And she, that's why she's – that's why she, she gets along with the help so well mm-hmm. because she is essentially one of the help, you know? Yeah. She's not – she is not of society. He married a commoner. For lack of a better word, and yeah. so she's she is because uh, I I in our in our Q and A here, I brought up the point that there's Demory might be saying something about the attitudes of of high society, mm. especially like the Victorian type of high society. I know this post dates this is after the Victorian period has ended, but it shares so much 
with that era and the era slightly before it too so i completely agree with you uh i was gonna say in like harsher words that she's basically insignificant i mean you know and she you're right she really has no identity apart from being with maxim or being with uh mrs van hopper even being Mm -hmm. with mrs danvers with whatever person that she's associated all the calls that she makes to other people, like she sort of just sits there and, you know, is listening and isn't really as engaged. And and it, part of it is because of her shy personality. But uh, it, it is sad, you know, it's just unfortunate that she really has no identity apart from the previous wife of, of the, the man that she is currently married to. And even Mrs. Van Hopper, while it seems cruel at the time, there's probably some insight there. She tells her, like, you're making a mistake. He's using you. He's, you know, just for um, for his own purposes of, like, a companion mm-hmm. or, or whatever yeah. that is. And to a certain extent, he even says, like, he had hoped that, you know, she would be a companion uh, for him. He enjoyed the, their conversation. So I think it was he was uh, he was using her almost to erase, I think, the bad taste that Rebecca had with and, and potentially gave him hope that he could be happy again though that you know is too much i think for her to potentially handle it's sad i'm sorry that she doesn't get an identity i almost wish she would i mean she's in you know it was funny on one site it was like she's referred to as caroline but this is not her name like clearly caroline she dresses up as yeah i know i just thought that was funny that the website said that but i almost wish that she would have gained an identity at the very end you know, like maybe there was some mm-hmm. last line, but I guess it, it's still pretty poignant that throughout the entire novel, she is not uh, referred to by any proper noun. And it is, it is at least mentioned, I didn't mention this in the plot, uh, that her name is probably pretty fancy. Fancy is not the word I'm looking for, but it could be difficult for people to pronounce because she does mention how her father um, named her in, uh, in a special way. So it seemed, and she was even shocked that someone was able to pronounce it correctly. So it's mm. clear like that maybe, and it's that's interesting because perhaps her name doesn't really fit her. Like it's a little too hoity-toity for the narrator herself. But that was one excuse, of course, um, for her never being named is that it's just too difficult to potentially pronounce. But I think you really got it is that she's not a person. Uh, she really has no individual identity, but yeah. is just associated with, with whatever person she is with at the time. Yeah. She has very little to do with the events of the end of the novel. Yeah. Like – She's there as essentially a stand-in for the reader because uh, – I'm not talking about the, the party and the whole conflict with Mrs. Danvers. That's hers. But the shipwreck, everything from the shipwreck onward, there's no reason for her to be there. You know, like yeah. if that shipwreck happens and, and everybody but her is there, it probably plays out in a very similar way yeah. on, on some level. But at the same time, she's not she's not wholly insignificant. Right. You know, it it is her story in a, in a, in many ways. Mm-hmm. But she is very passive. Yeah. So you think she could have jumped out the window and everything would have been the same? Yeah, because had she jumped out the window, but because the, the shipwreck basically wakes her back up a little bit, right? And um, had she actually jumped. You have that on top of the shipwreck with the body and the now, but I wonder. I don't want to say the shipwreck's a Deus Ex Machina type of thing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, 
it is very much it can be read as <laughs> this plot has to wrap itself up at some point let's have something happen to do that yeah i mean it's it's the thing that pulls everything together yeah it's not killing everybody off in an explosion it's not the big storm that wipes out half the island but it yeah it is something that you know something has to happen at that point and that's what happens even though I knew she wasn't going to jump out of the window, because this is the second time that I read it, I was getting really annoyed that she was, like, falling into this trance and, mm-hmm. like, was like, actually, it doesn't seem that far down. I'm like, woman, get it together! I just get annoyed when female characters decide to either run into the ocean or uh, throw themselves beneath trains. So I'll add windows to that list. Yeah. Um, those are references to other literature works. Did you get them? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> The Awakening was the ocean, and Anna Karenina was the train. Did I spoil it? The Awakening sounds – you've mentioned The Awakening before. I've never read Anna Karenina. Oh, okay. I spoiled it. I'm sorry. It's on my my shelf. It's (laughs) mocking me. Okay. It's telling me, read me. Yes, yes. And and then you you mentioned about is this a criticism of the upper crust of English society, which is funny because it seems like Maurier comes from (laughs) the upper crust. Yeah, but like, and maybe, and maybe that's me reading it from a modern perspective. And I did yeah. mention Gatsby. Right. Uh, I mentioned Gatsby, and one of the things about Gatsby when Gatsby throws parties is that like everybody at those parties is so vapid. Oh, indeed. And yeah. a lot of the people at the party, a lot of the upper crust people, with a couple of exceptions, are really vapid. Right. And at the same time, and this is something that um, I mentioned, and, and I'll, and I think we can. It may be my next point too. Rebecca seemed to have disdain for those people as well, mm. because of 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 you know what she did and how she did it. And right. um, and she he said that she like turned around and talked badly about them. All the yeah, time. yeah. The, this sense of maintaining this decorum and all this high society crap in 1938 when you're coming out of the depression. And you're heading toward the Second World War. It seems so detached from the world in a way that the ultra rich really are so detached from the rest of the world. Mm. And but again, maybe that's my 21st century modern take on it in a way that that was not De Maurier's intention. So take that as you will. Yeah. I absolutely, though, agree with you, and I think, especially in particular characters, I think Mrs. Van Hopper is certainly one of them, just with how she is associating. Like, she only wants to really talk with the winner to get gossip or to, like, you know, sidle up to him and um, get some influence there, and she's only concerned about with whom she is seen or whom she sees and associates with Mm -hmm. people pre-party, pre-ball, or only talking about, oh, when are you going to bring back the balls? They were so lovely. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. That, yeah, so that's all they care about. And then they also comment, well, I guess maybe they don't comment, but in the narrator's mind, she's self-conscious about her garb all the time. And people, mm-hmm. I think, ask, like, oh, have you done shopping? And she's considered getting catalogs and everything. So, clear, you know, people being focused on showing, I think, their wealth and the showiness of that. And, and she's yeah. not that type of person at all. She's very much down to earth. She's very much, I mean, what, she's Jane Eyre. And, and just, and I know you haven't read it, but, you know, just being 
meek and mild and modest in, in all things that she does or she wears and everything. And, and you, you made a point before that she is more comfortable with her, I was going to say handmaiden, but that's not the right term. I guess her She's like maid? the staff. She well, seems to get along with Frank. She seems to get along with well, some of the Frank, others yeah, except for Miss Danvers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she feels like some of the other, like the butlers and stuff, uh, they judge her. But Frank and her right-hand maid, she certainly gets along Alice? well. Alice? I think, yeah. And her mother, like she goes over and visits them, and she's yeah. able to easily, more easily relate to them and talk with them than she is when, with the other calls that she makes well, and everything. Well, and then there's the guy down by the wharf, the oh, – um, yeah. Yeah. Down by the boathouse, the 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 guy who who stutters a little yeah. bit, and, and yep. he's yeah, who Rebecca had threatened, and yep. he was like legitimately scared of her, oh, yeah. uh, probably for good reason. Oh, and yeah. um, and our, our our narrator is like, no, this is just very very kind to him, you know. So which which shows the contrast between the two Mrs. De Winters very very well. Absolutely. Continuing on with our narrator, I wanted to talk about. Her sort of dream world <laughs> that she lives in. Yeah. Uh, so my question was, do you feel like she lives in a state of unreality? And does she continue to even after the truth of Rebecca is revealed? And what I mean by this state of unreality, just to like clarify, is that several points in the novel, and I mean several, she will in real time dream or fan like fantasize of what people are saying either about her or what's going on or what situations could happen she she is like very much almost like on the outside looking in and just like dreaming of these on page 280 uh, she sort of realizes i think all of this stuff that has happened they were all fitting into place, the jigsaw pieces, the odd strange shapes that I had tried to piece together with my fumbling fingers, and they had never fitted. Frank's odd manner when I spoke about Rebecca, Beatrice and her rather diffident negative attitude, the silence that I had always taken for sympathy and regret with a silence born of shame and embarrassment. It seemed incredible to me now that I had never understood. I wondered how many people there were in the world who suffered and continued to suffer because they could not break out from their own web of shyness and reserve, and in their blindness and folly built up a great distorted wall in front of them that hid the truth. This was what I had done. I had built up false pictures in my mind and sat before them. I had never had the courage to demand the truth. Had I made one set forward out of my own shyness, Maxim would have told me these things four months, five months ago. So do you think she lives in this state of unreality? And then do you think even after the truth is revealed, is she continuing, do you believe, to live in a state of unreality? I think she does up until the point where Mandalay's on fire. Okay. Because on the drive home, she's having dream after dream because she keeps falling back in and out of sleep. Yeah. But at one point, she starts to think about Manderly toward when she's on her way back to there and how she will make changes. Mm, yeah. Do we have the same book again? <laughs> Is it? Does it have a um, a sepia tone cover with a big like bright blue R on it? Yes, it does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Funny that this happened the second time in a row. Yeah. Oh, okay. Continue. Uh, so it's on three eighty two. It was going to be. It's the first full paragraph. It's going to be very different in the future. I was not going to be nervous and shy of the servants anymore. With Mrs. Danvers gone, because they found out that Mrs. Danvers packed her stuff and left. Right. I should learn bit by bit to control the house. I would go and interview the cook in the kitchen. They would like me. 
respect me. Soon to be those Mrs. Danvers had never had command. I would learn more about the estate, too. I should ask Frank to explain things to me. I'm sure Frank liked me. I liked him, too. I would go into things and learn how they were managed, what they did at the farm, how the work in the grounds was planned. I might take to gardening myself and in time have one or two things altered. The little square lawn outside the morning room window with the statue of the satyr. I didn't like it. I, we would give the satyr away. There were heaps of things. So she's she's planning out Manderley. Absolutely. Um, thinking in her little fantasy world here, I'm going to take her place now. Mm-hmm. And I think that – there's that contentment at the very beginning of the novel that is her, perhaps her living and finally living in reality with Maxim in wherever they happen to be after Manderley has burned. It's almost like it snaps her out of it in a way. But you're right. Throughout most of the novel, she's just in this sort of weird dream state where she's just she's making assumptions and building up drama where there's no drama or, you know, or just like, you know, especially like between her and her husband mm-hmm. where you, like you said, he turns around and he's like, I hated her yeah. and you, you never, you should have told me like, you know, like why didn't we ever talk to one another? Yeah. yeah I think it certainly connects back to the, the communication. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the key word in that, that uh, chunk you read there, I think is wood, right? To show yes. sort of this idea that you're not quite sure in Latin as well, any of the ancient, languages probably as well as other things it would be in the subjunctive which is always used uh, to show that there's some doubt as to whether or not it would happen Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like it's very much true she's living in that unreality before and I almost wish that there were a break once she has that realization of how key communication is and she has that back and forth with her husband I, I would hope that she would stop living but you're right on the way back I think she is still a bit dreamy of, you know, what's happening. And honestly, the whole situation is cast into doubt anyways of what's going to happen to her husband. You know, like, are they going to be able to get away with this murder and everything? But but I agree with you that uh, hopefully now at the end end, which is really the beginning, that she is living... In, in a realistic setting now and she's yeah. living in real life because she doesn't have to think about any of the other stuff now. It's, it's Manderley's gone, Ghost or Spectre of Rebecca and Mrs. Danvers is gone. It's just her and Maxim. Maxim could potentially be living in an unreality now uh, mm-hmm. because of those reveries I think that he goes into and finds himself. But otherwise, I'm hoping that the narrator is sort of in real life now. Yeah, totally. Okay. Looking when I was looking up information about the film, uh, just to get some background there to at least revisit the Hitchcock film, I saw a quote on the adaptation by Hitchcock, and now I can't remember <laughs> the website that I found this on. But it was feminist readings of the story posit Rebecca as the book's heroine. Any modern reader will view Rebecca sympathetically the more they see of her husband. So my question is, because I was kind of taken aback by this when I read it, do you agree or disagree with these statements or statements? He, he's not Macbeth. <laughs> That's what they're setting her up. They're setting her up to be Lady Macbeth. Yeah. He's not Macbeth. He doesn't have the – he's a really passive character. And Macbeth's nuts, but he's a really passive character. And yeah. – the thing is, there's no hero in this story. Like I just like I I said earlier, like and this is this is what I wrote down. I like does this book really have a hero or heroine? They're all flawed. Most of these characters are unlikable. 
So I don't think how she would I don't see how she'd be a heroine. She's not a victim either. You know? She's not trapped in a loveless marriage. He's trapped in a loveless marriage. And I say that as someone who considers himself a feminist. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I don't I don't see her as a hero mm. in that sense. Right. And I don't get the especially more when the more they see of her husband, she trapped this guy. Right. Like she knew exactly what he, she was doing mm-hmm. when she married him. And then she's stripping her cousin. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I suppose you could see a modern, is this empowerment? I don't know if this is empowerment either. She clearly does her own thing. But at the same time, it's like I, I don't, I don't know if I see that as an empowering, heroic figure. Yeah. I like the fact that she is a more complicated woman than, say, Mrs. Danvers. Mm-hmm. But, and and I definitely like her in that regard. I like that the specter that haunts Manderley and that haunts Maxim and that eventually haunts our narrator is of a woman who was very much of her own person. Right. And not the sort of mother died young and she was so pretty. And she like the, the, they set her up like in the narrator is mine. That's what Rebecca is. Mm-hmm. But when the real Rebecca is revealed, she's a lot more complicated. And I like I like the complexity of the character. And I like how the character does things for herself. But I don't think she's a hero. Mm-hmm. But then again, maybe my definition of hero is much different than the person who said that. Yeah. So first of all, I will say it came from The Guardian. The Guardian was the website that I saw. Okay. Uh, talking about the Hitchcock film. I, I, oh, when I first read it, I was really taken aback. And like knee jerk, I was like, whoa, 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 no way, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so I can imagine why um, f- the, the whole feminist readings, I think that's like the key key phrase there because she is just as you portrayed her or or depicted her she is a woman who is sort of free to do what she wants um she is athletic she's adventurous uh she can you know be with whatever man she wants without being tied down to him i guess you know this is potentially the picture of what a, a free woman is contrasting to our meek and mild narrator who is very attached to Maxim, can't really find her own way, is not as strong of a a female lead. So I I can, you know, sort of get there, but I still disagree that that it's the book's heroine. I don't know if it has one, quite honestly. I think the easy answer is to say that it's the narrator, but she's, like, straight struggling. I mean, you want her to, like, succeed and you feel bad for her when all these terrible things are happening and put a upon her by Mrs. Danvers, but she's not as much in control of her own life as, say, Jane Eyre is in in sort of the same vein. So I I don't know if I can say anyone was the heroine. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. As for the whole, will I see her sympathetically, I guess the reason why there would be any chance of seeing is because she's sick and then when I hear about you know the more they see of her I feel you know the more they see of her husband I, I again I feel like he's not a sociopath he was never a cruel person she tricked him into this marriage she seems like a pretty terrible human being like waiting four days out and like let me tell you about myself <laughs> um, you're absolutely right about uh, Favel uh, you know her cousin which 
you know how who knows if it's their first cousin but even that's what worse, he says he is oh is it the first i couldn't remember i was hoping maybe yeah it's her first, co- first it's, cousin. no it's her first cousin oh, okay he uh, also feels like she's in love with him. And I remember yeah. someone making some, oh, it was Mrs. Danvers, wasn't it? That's like, she didn't love anyone. And so she's even using him like anyone. I mean, she uses them and abuses them and just like tosses them to the side like garbage. Yeah. So I'm not really sure how you can side with anyone who's like that, whether you feel like she's her own girl or, <laughs> I mean, I just don't, yeah. So I, I feel bad for her husband that it seems like he's long suffering. And yes, he did a bad thing. I'm not condoning the murder at all, but um, I feel more sad for him than for for. And and our narrator is so wishy-washy that you you know, like I said, you don't feel sympathy for anything. And then I'm talking about like um, the not like I said, the novels from 1938, but but it's clearly influenced by an earlier period of time. And you mentioned that in your um, in in your recap of of Demarie's life herself. It's been a long time since I read like victorian literature like you know study because I, I took a class on in college and you know the victorian period and 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 i may be way off so if, if you know more than i do on this just 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 correct me after i'm i'm, I'm done <laughs> or, or or readers like can can you email me and correct me because victorian literature is not my strong my strong point but the the victorian era to me is typified by this very very kind of conservative attitude toward um, sex and sexuality, and I mean like conservative, just in the general term. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to put this in some more like modern American political, you know, no, BS. Yeah, it was going yeah. on, and you know, the idea that it's very, very prim and very, very proper, and sex is not something that's discussed. And I was thinking about that because the because earlier I mentioned there's a novel that I was reminded of the other other Victorian novel that I have read that came to mind when I was reading this was Dracula. I was just about to say, was it Dracula? It was Dracula. <laughs> and Dracula, there is... Um, now, Coppola, in his 93... I think it was what, 1992, 1993 adaptation of Dracula with uh, Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder and Gary Oldman, decided to make like all the all the subtext of sexuality like completely overt to the point where you have that very, very weird scene with Sadie Frost having sex with... like a were beast, but I haven't seen that movie since I saw it in the theater, but it's, it's, I remember it being very odd at some points, but Dracula has like, there's so much of Dracula that is about sex, yet it's all subtext. And this dares to bring that to the front, you know, like where she basically, you know, she Favel, you know, this, we were lovers and I'm, and I'm, doing this with my cousin and mm. she confesses to it it's another person's baby like it's it is 20 it is when when that's revealed it's very 20th century yeah. but at the same time i was thinking about like oh so this is like kind of the anti-victorian novel but at the same time i was thinking wait where did all of it take place not at manderley it took place in the boathouse mm, true it's or a in place london. in the cottage or right, in london yeah. it's a place not at victorian estate oh. And not only that, the sex, which is not does not take place in the novel, but if you think about it, and maybe this is again, this is me just going off on one of my you know, more from my perspective tangents. If she's stripping her cousin, that's pretty vulgar. Mm-hmm. There's a vulgarity about that that even our modern, even in our modern day, like sex with your cousin is not considered. <laughs> it's 
it's reserved for jokes about hill people. Right. You know, it's it, it, it it's reserved for jokes about from people, you know, who are who are from like Appalachia, you know, the the sort of typical deliverance type of 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 comedic bits. Mm-hmm. That that nobody in their right mind would go bone their cousin, and you're like, so there's a vulgarity about the sex in this. Mm-hmm. But now, I don't know. Take that as what you will. I might be completely off there, but I was thinking about that today. I mean, my mind literally blew when you mentioned that that it doesn't happen at Manderley. Uh, it gets pretty I don't darn think it close. Does. Yeah, it gets pretty darn close because I remember with the boathouse thing, like he was. Well, he goes in how she's very careful in the beginning, but then she starts to slip up and mm-hmm. um, show her, I think, real face. Um, so it gets pretty close, dangerously so. But you're absolutely right that it stays away and, and how that's really amazing uh, if that was intentional to sort of stay away from those um, ideals or mores, uh, but outside of it sort of go along with the more modern ideas. <laughs> Oh. Or the idea—I mean, not that people in Victorian times didn't have sex and didn't oh, have, right. yeah. and perhaps that—that's where it was happening. That yeah. Like you know, they had, but now you have now you because it's 1938, not 1888. You can bring the you can bring that out in a novel the way you couldn't 50 or 60 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So the illicit thing can be explicit. Yeah. So much, not not entirely, but to a certain extent. Uh, it's funny you keep mentioning about the cousin because you're rewatching Robotech and, of course, Minman Kyle. That's a potential oh, thing God. right there. Uh, that's something you've neglected to mention, sir. But we can't have continuity in this show, so I'll just drop that comment and move on. Speaking of her, shut up, <laughs> Speaking of her cousin, Favel, is he merely a plot point, or do you think he's an actual character? I think he really is more of a plot. Divide. I mean, like he adds some motivation to the plot for the ending. It should end if the boat crash doesn't happen. She throws herself out the window. Mrs. Danvers walks away with a smug smile on her face, yeah. and that's the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. And and Rebecca still haunts the grounds, and the cycle begins anew. Right. But De Maurier puts on this ending with Favel. You know, I think he he had appeared earlier in the novel. When he tells her all about that, she mentions, you know, you know, her cousin was here. Um, so it's it's that's like he's dropped in a little earlier to kind of set that up. Mm-hmm. And he and Mrs. Danvers obviously have some sort of connection. Yeah. I actually, for a very split second at one point, wondered if Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca were lovers. And then mm-hmm. and then I was glad that they weren't because I didn't want evil lesbians. Yeah, like I just, it didn't. I mean, it would have, for the time, it probably would have, you know, I say it would have made sense for the time, but like storytelling convention wise, you know, that, you know, of of attitudes. But, uh, but no, that. Written by Virginia Woolf. I I really really (laughs) thought about it, but yeah. (laughs) But like Favel just, uh, I just like, I think Favel's just there, there to advance certain points of the plot Mm -hmm. and to provide more complication. Yeah. I think he's very much sort of the manifestation of the doubt that's raised in the trial because mm-hmm. already the boat maker or the boat repair man had put doubt in the mind that this was not an accident. And yeah. so then, you know, Favel comes forward, well, secretly, and is like, I know that this wasn't an accident. So I agree with you that it's a plot point, but I also think he serves as a 
another representation of all the suitors that Rebecca had and just how their relationships were. And also, I guess, uh, a look into who Rebecca is because you sort of learn about them growing up side by side. And there was that one anecdote about um, them racing, I think, on a horse or something, and she, like, beat him. It was something like that with, with, with Mrs. Danvers telling a story. Uh, just so to show, like, her sort of wild ways and how mm-hmm. um, she is mastered by no one. But I think it also shows how lacking all care and compassion Rebecca is because Favelle feels like she loves him and Mrs. Danvers like she loved no one but herself so uh, I think he um, (laughs) he's an interesting character if only because he's clearly he thinks more highly of himself than he ought Um, and he is as clueless as everybody else even though he's very smug and thinks he's got it all down Uh, so I agree that he's a plot point but I think he's also a manifestation of like certain things like all put into a character that that acts as like a window into Rebecca's character a little bit more than from another view than than just Mrs. Danvers. Mm-hmm. I think Mrs. Danvers just idolizes Rebecca. I think she does. Do you think there's I, any sort of like homoeroticism on her side? At no, all? like I said, I had a split second thought about that, but that's because I think I've I've seen, I think I've seen it too many times in more modern day movies and television. Gotcha. So that that's what led me to it. I think she was more admiration. Yeah. And an obsession. Obsession. Wanting to be. <laughs> Why do you do this to yourself? Oh no. Okay. Uh, but she. But you. I mean, you brought up. She was obsessed with her. She. She was. She wanted to. In a way, she always wanted to be her. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And she's protecting her, mm-hmm. and she protected her affairs, and she yeah. felt special status because of that. And I wonder if if the anger that she has – that's why I was saying maybe she had some anger toward Rebecca, which is why she, one of the reasons she burned Manderley yeah. because she realized that she was being used just as anybody else and she thought she wasn't. She thought she was the one who knew everything. She was the confident, yeah. confidant mm-hmm. and you know, Becky doesn't do that. Yeah, Becky doesn't. Do you think that this could be similar to your idea of what Manderley stood for and that she's sort of the past and, and admiring the future uh, woman? Mm, possibly. Okay. Just wondered. Very possible, yeah. yeah. Well, on this uh, this topic, we're winding down here, but I wanted mm-hmm. to save Mrs. Danvers towards the end. Uh, clearly, mm. she's villainous. Uh, I called her sinister in my, in my plot. Yeah. In my plot. <laughs> I mean, she... she I, I think the worst... Mo- well... I guess trying to get someone to jump out of her own will um, out of a window is pretty bad. But honestly, I feel like the worst moment for me was making the, our poor narrator design that dress and oh, gosh, feel like so yeah. proud about it and then come down when she knew all along that Rebecca had oh, So That's just cold. It <laughs> that was, is so cold. And then, like, Rebecca, or not Rebecca, um, the narrator, like, looks yeah. and sees her and she's like, I knew she was there and I knew, you know, she had a smile on her face or whatever. Um, yeah. And you could probably just imagine lightning striking and lighting it up. How, so my question is, how, for you, does Mrs. Danvers rank overall as a villain in literature she's pretty she's manipulative <laughs> and she's not redeemable either there's something very maleficent about her like original recipe maleficent from sleeping beauty who right. goes down fighting as a dragon not the angelina jolie movie which i really liked but yeah. there's like you know that that's a redemption arc for that character 
so there's not that modern day <laughs> this is what bothers me about a lot of modern day villains in movies mostly they have a sympathetic backstory like they're this way because xyz happened like they can't just be monstrous they're somebody hurt them and they're getting back at them for it or or they're you know or, or whatever it's there there's too many of that I think we're starting to move away from it for a little bit. Like I think some of the villains we've seen in some more modern comic movies are just flat out villains now. Right. And and I'm talking in terms of comics because we watch a lot of comic movies, but like Mrs. Danvers is of that mold of, she is just evil. There's no, her motivation is Rebecca, but she doesn't want Rebecca to love her. Like she wants to be Rebecca. She wants in a sense that power. You know, and that's her motivation. In the same way, it's, she's she's almost like a wicked stepmother from a fairy tale, and those characters are never fleshed out. Yeah. So she's, a, but I, that's what I thought of. I thought of like the evil queen, the evil stepmother, like the one who is jealous, but doesn't have this sort of sympathetic. I kind of feel bad for her in a way. Story arc that we've seen with so many villains. I don't think they're gonna make a musical about her. <laughs> Like wicked, you know. She's just—that's like not her. She's not misunderstood. Yeah, I don't think she's misunderstood. I think she's very plainly understood, and I think that's the whole point. She's cold. That's she's it. cold-hearted, and that's what—that's what, that's she's what cold I like. As ice. She's willing to sacrifice our love. Yeah. <laughs> Singing foreigner now. <laughs> well, you said she's cold, so that's all. Yes, yeah, she is. That's all I could think of. <laughs> So I feel like, to a certain extent, it's all relative with literature sometimes. Or with Rebecca, it is all relative. Oh, my. I can't believe you went there, sir. You walked right into that Well, whatever, anyways. Because I feel like, and this is my example to, like, make sense. Maybe this will make it even worse and it will make sense. But I enjoy snow sports, so I snowboard. So Mm -hmm. a diamond is usually the highest difficulty. It could be a double diamond. is the highest difficulty on a mountain. Mm -hmm. But it's all relative to the actual mountain. So, like, say a diamond in here in Virginia is going to be easier than a diamond over in the West. So, mm-hmm. you know, just to feel get like out in Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of villains, because I come upon some villains, I'm like, oh, my gosh, these are terrible people. And you might, you know, love to hate them, those types of villains. But then you go read something else, and you're like, they're even worse. Mm-hmm. The example, I would say, is Lady Macbeth has already, always been, like, my top, one of my top literary villains that I very much enjoy, um, mm-hmm. and literary female villains. And But then I started to, I felt like maybe I was misunderstanding her after a while, especially after I read Othello. Because Iago is like on a completely different level than mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth. <laughs> Lady Macbeth gets consumed by her guilt. Yeah, she does. In a way that Mrs. Danvers doesn't. Yes. So, yeah. And, and I think, I remember being asked this, it must have been on like Spider-Man Crossface, like what are my favorite villains? And I think I mentioned Lady Macbeth and Mrs. Danvers. Uh, I think she's an amazing villain. I think she's pretty up there in villainy. Uh, she might still be below 
Eog. Well, actually, they have some similar tactics there. Because there are some worse villains out there, but she's pretty terrible with the things uh-huh. that she does. And the fact that she doesn't push her out the window, but she's, like, convincing her to do it herself. That's and even she's, worse. Oh, I know. It is, honestly, uh, really worse. And just, she really is sinister. There's, like, no other way around it. Um, so I think she's one of the best villains in literature, quite honestly. I think uh, she's a great character and great villain in this novel, but I think even if I look outside of it, I think she ranks pretty high on the the villain list in literature. Yeah, I think you're right. You don't get a lot of really solid villains like this sometimes. You know, like when a lot of the novels that I've read uh, or my students have read, there are antagonists. Right. But like villains – especially as you get more toward the 2021st centuries tend to be few and far between, at least in the quote literary novels or novels of the canon that we see, mm-hmm. you know, yep. or at least the motivation, like, you know, the, you can see where the motivation comes from. You can kind of see it or they have a heel turn, you know, that I think that's part of it. Like I'm thinking of um, Jack in Lord of the flies. Oh, okay. Who's the one who, who form who's this more savage well he's kind of a bully to begin with mm-hmm. and then he's more savage toward the end he's the one who tries to kill ralph and he basically ends up killing piggy and no 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 one of the other boys kills piggy but, but like he's the leader of that pack and right. like you know but, but but at the same time I, he's not up there like with with her like because he's a child and then there's sort of a a weird like it you kind of feel for the the kids in the island because of the circumstances they're in you know, because they're so special. Aside, we're here. This is this is the reality of the place. And Mrs. Danvers is a full adult and mm-hmm. knows very well what she's doing. Yeah, and she does it. She she's not always overt about it. Like she, it really is subtle. It's a psychological. It's a long con. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. then at the end, does it like really all come tumbling out? So she's uh, she's a pretty masterful villain. <laughs> yeah, kind of like. Um, uh, O'Brien in, in 1984, oh. you know, like like that that con that you mentioned the long con. Yeah. I mean, that's a long con, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's the thing that got me. That's that's why that got me about the party. I was like, oh crap! Yeah. I like was really was like, holy crap! Like, oh, my God, she's good. Yeah. And then trying to get her to jump, and you're right. It's just it's evil. Yeah. It's so evil. I do like that character uh-huh. because I like how Demoria just stuck with her being evil and didn't try to make her sympathetic. Right. Yeah. I, I was like thinking. Her more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was thinking and I, I kind of feel like I have to apologize because I keep bringing in comic references. That's okay. But I was thinking about um, Tara in the Teen Titans and especially mm-hmm. um, the copy you lent me of Terra Incognito and it had the introduction by the um, Wolfman and Perez. Yeah. And I can't remember which one said it, but I, first of all, she was sort of created as a joke because they kept saying that oh, fans were comparing. She's like the anti-Kitty Pride. Right, yeah. right. And so he just wanted to make her evil for being evil. And I thought, I mean, this is it. Like, you, sometimes you kind of need villains to just be their evil instead of like trying to have them have a redeeming characteristic about them. So I like that about Mrs. Danvers. Because <laughs> yeah, there's a scene later on uh, toward the end of the Judas contract where in the, the hive headquarters and like she attacks the Terminator and cha- and Gar like is all like she's with the Titans. She's like, I never liked any of you. Like she just she's after everybody at that yeah. point. Yeah. You know, the point where she basically you know, she kills herself or brings everything down on her. The right. sort of this ends this way, you know, like either you die or I die. And it's a 
death by your own destruction type of scenario. Um, Mrs. Danvers, I, I'm kind of glad that we don't see Mrs. Danvers get what Mrs. Danvers gets what's coming to her, and the fact that she's shattered by the revelations about Rebecca, but she right. never dies or anything like that. She yeah. just, in fact, the narrator at the beginning just wonders what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder whatever happened to her, and it's not wistful, it's not scared, it's just like, huh. I haven't thought about her in a while. I wonder what ever happened to that woman. The same way you might think about somebody from your past, just right. general. Yeah. Meanwhile, next door. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to get her. <laughs> Could you imagine she was like next door in the same hotel? Mm-hmm. So my final question before we uh, talk about whether we would recommend it or potentially teach this okay. is do you think that Rebecca is a ghost story? Not in the supernatural sense, obviously. Mm-hmm. But yes, she certainly is haunting Manderley. And she haunts Mrs. Danvers in a way that Mrs. Danvers thinks she can control it. She haunts Maxim and she haunts our narrator in a way that our narrator doesn't even understand. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a ghost story in that regard. Yeah, and I think, you know, mysteries abound. I don't think she's quite as... I think, again, if I were to relate it to other things like potentially Northanger Abbey or um, Jane Eyre where there actually are some like weird things afoot, it's so, sort of lower ranking. But because she is very much the specter that is always around but never actually there, I, I think it does potentially qualify uh, as a ghost story. Yeah. Cool. So would you recommend this to to other people? Uh, what type of people would you recommend it? And since we're both teachers, would you teach this novel? I would put this on an AP senior, AP Lit 2, oh. AP Lit English list. Um, I know that where I work, I believe the summer, I believe Jane Eyre is the summer reading for AP 2. I would put that up there with, I would be like, you know, I would put this as an option, maybe even after that, or just I, I think it's, I think it's a really, really rich novel, and I think it's gripping in parts, and it's just, um, or, or I would teach it, in, definitely teach it in college at least. I, I, I think I would put it on a curriculum somewhere, and I would recommend to, it to people who, you know, the like, I, I the first actually one of the first things I thought about when I started reading this novel was like Downton Abbey mm, and that yep. sort of stuff, and I've never watched a single minute of Downton Abbey. Uh, uh, except for seeing preview commercials for it on PBS, but I know a bunch of people who do really like Downton Abbey, and I'm like, th- this made me think of that. And I don't know if they've if if any of them have read it, but I think this would this might go well with like that crowd. This this might go over pretty well mm-hmm. with with that crowd because it's like rich people intrigue type of things. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be better as a higher level mm-hmm. um, book. Uh, you mentioned seniors. Um, I think, yeah, either juniors or seniors. I'm a little taken aback because there's a reading club that's starting at the school where I am for students, and there's some. there are a lot of eighth graders in there, and I think freshmen. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how far it goes up, but the first book they're reading is Wuthering Heights. And, yeah, at first I was like, I can't believe you're reading that. And now all these people that I was very open about, oh, I can't believe, they're like, it's so slow. The most interesting thing that's happened is a dog jumped on somebody. Um, but I kind of wonder, like, the if more's... that's too high level for an eighth grader. I mean, some of that, I mean, they're they're intelligent, but I just don't know if you can appreciate a novel as much as if you were older maybe and like had more experience with books yeah i was actually this came up one of the classes i'm taking it's about adolescent literacy in the textbook that i had to read 
and or one of the books I had to read. And they were ta- the, the author was talking about how there are kids who, and my son is actually one of them, who is in one a certain grade, but they read at a grade level like higher. Mm-hmm. They were there, so like Brett is in fourth grade, but he's reading at a middle school level. Oh, and one of the things that a man and I have struggled with over the last couple of years, not struggle with, but like we kind of think he, I think he's found his um, his groove. But for a little bit, we were kind of struggling with what after the Harry Potter novels, what do we get him? And we found like Percy Jackson and the Rick Riordan book series, and he's reading Hardy Boys and things like that. But you wonder like he's reading at like what do you find at a middle school level for a kid who's nine years old? And when there might be things that are too emotionally mature for him that he may read and he may know the words, but he's not going to fully understand it, which is why I know some people who have – when we read Night by Elie Wiesel, I know some people who have read it already because they were assigned it at another school or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yet they get more out of it in 10th grade because they're more mature. Right. And I think you're right. I think it at eighth, you know, um, I, I mean, maybe there's an eighth grader who get Weathering Heights. I mean, I read Weathering Heights when I was in my early 30s because I had to teach it. It was a summer reading for a yeah. senior class that I was teaching, and I came into teaching the senior class that had already been assigned by the previous teacher. Uh-huh. So I read it, and it's slow. And I bought the Cliff's Notes to go back through it because I was just like honestly bored out of my skull but um but like but i think you're right i think it's like one of those things where especially with a book like rebecca where um and i would say the same thing about gatsby too where you're you're gonna it takes a while to get into and then you know if you're not really into something like this you're gonna put it down and never really look at it again but once it gets going it's really really good but again I don't want to say like you have to have literary training, you have to know books or anything, but but you definitely have to be sort of that upper level reader to really um, sit down and read this one for for pleasure, or you have to be of like that sort of genre. I think it's really well representative of the genre. I agree with you. So I I think I would teach it uh, with higher level students mm-hmm. and um, recommend wise. I think I would potentially recommend it to someone who. Has already read maybe some gothic uh, literature like Jane Eyre or maybe Wuthering Heights or Northanger yeah. Abbey. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Downton Abbey crowd I think would be good. But um, I, I think it's it's a classic. I, I, I think it deserves that title for sure. And I think anyone who's looking for um, a great villainess. <laughs> I think they need to know about Mrs. Danvers. So I, I would re- recommend it to anyone. So. Well, we do have some feedback. Yes. Tom, would you like to read our email? Yes, it is from. It is about the Little Prince episode from Jack. I'm going to say Bon. It is Bon, yeah. And he says, "I downloaded this episode. Why? Because I've read this book. I'm not averse to doing homework for listening to podcasts, but up to now, it's just been rewatching monster movies or digging through comics boxes, as we all do." That's my commentary. It wasn't for <laughs> school, but it was from school, the Scholastic Book Club. Ooh. Oh, yes, I, I remember oh, those. Oh, I yeah. remember the, the Scholastic Book Club. Tons of Ruth Chu, Beverly Cleary. Yes, Beverly Cleary. Uh, Donald J. Sobel, and well, this thing. My book's back cover was half blurb and half black and white photograph of the prince and the man walking in the desert. I'm guessing from the 1974 movie. So depending on whether it was advertising for a soon to be a major motion picture or remain from being not quite as major motion pictures we thought, I would have been 10 or 11 ish. 
As to the literary awareness of kids that age, I did pick up that the little prince may have returned home or may have died at the end. The other thing I remember is that I read the inhabitants of the other asteroids and the people traveling from one place to another that the fox comments on as saying, don't be like these people. Fulfilling the requirement of the message of the book uh, to be so cynical at such a young age. On to thoughts sparked by your podcast. Written during World War II, that was when you could say goodbye to people and until you saw them again, not know if they were dead or alive. Well, that's true of everyday life, but it would have been especially born into St. Exupery then. Not just fellow aviators on missions, but friends left in occupied France or the London Blitz, and even to an extent away from fighting in the Americas. There must have been an extra feeling for the prince when he realized that he left his flower alone and for the pilot's concern for them both at the end. As for the nature of the prince's love for the flower, as with the snake, there's a question of how much to just read the actions and how much to read symbolism. She was a rose. I'm just going to interject there now and say I really get that point about World War II. Mm-hmm. I don't think we mentioned that, and no. that makes total sense. Yeah. So really, that's, that's, that's a good one. We're getting back into Jack's email here. Was a line ever drawn between what is essential is invisible to the eye and the sheep in the box? Or the elephant in the bow constrictor. The theme then runs from a frivolous instance at the beginning to an end where the whole aspect of the sky changes depending on whether you think of an ephemeral rose as surviving or not. Jack. What do you make of the last questions there? I'm going to punt this to you. Oh, that's great. So I guess the main question is just that. Yeah. is, Is it the figurative versus the literal? Yeah, I mean, didn't we sort of get to that when we were talking yeah, about yeah, that yeah, particular yeah, yeah, yeah. issue? Yeah. What yeah. do they keep saying the elephant in the bow constrictor was? A hat? <laughs> yes, because you would ask, does this, look, does this scare you? What's scary about a hat? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for you a dust tail. Um, a dirt mound. It was a dirt mound. <laughs> yes! Obsession. Oh, man, I love this. That was my favorite episode to record on this podcast. <laughs> I think so. I, I think it certainly is a theme. What is essential is invisible to the eye. The, the fact that he kept drawing the different sheep and he was clearly failing because the prince said, no, 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 no. And then he just mm-hmm. drew a box and that's exactly what the uh, what the prince was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Or perhaps all of the, the complaints the rose had and constantly wanting things, like physical things, mm-hmm. like protection from the wind or from the baobabs or everything. But yeah. really, I think potentially what she was needing was care and attention and love and that was something that the prince needed as well but wasn't wasn't given it or returned it by the rose so i think that certainly is potentially a theme that we mm-hmm. see there okay yeah, so i don't thing. know if there is a dis- i think my answer would be there is no distinction between them mm-hmm. i think there is a connection with what is essential is invisible to the eye and the images that we see that are drawn okay. either at the beginning when the author or the narrator is a child and then at the mm-hmm. end Okay. But I don't know if you I'll have any. That. Do you have any other I, I don't. I'm okay. just being completely honest. How but dare nothing. you? Yeah, sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, I'm just kidding. But thank you. Thank you for your email, Jack. And, and anybody else who um, – I should I, – I guess I should make – we should make the, the, the small shag or, and rob <gasps> list of, of tweets and shares and all those things. You know how they run down like – Oh, you know, you know, you know, yeah, like, I do you, know what you, you mean. At the end yeah. of Husu, like, you know, Michael Bailey and and 
and Pop Dr. Rocks. Ange and little Russell Burlingham, Burningham and, and you know, the 1970s Dolphins and like, you know, like B. Arthur, you know, like all the people that, that tweet. I, I do want to mention just like anybody. Thank you to anybody who has shared. I know Professor Allen was giving us a little bit of back and forth, I think, in our in our in the episode on the call of the wild where Kimberly asked us about strong female characters. He got on our case about not mentioning Tess. Give me a break. Tess of the Derudos. Of the Derudos. Which, which there's a similarity between Tess and Rebecca because Tess was taken advantage of um, and had sex with someone prior to being married but did not tell her husband about it. But, like, she was racked with guilt, so it's different. But she uh-huh. he felt trapped in the marriage and terrible things transpire. It's a very downer novel. Well, he's the one who told me the joke about reading if you yes, want to read a Thomas yes, Hardy novel with a good yes. ending start at the end and the beginning and then uh, my friend terry hartman who has a podcast that is slightly similar to this that i've been on before called the high school book club that i do recommend and and uh, it's a great podcast you should check that out no no i copied her (laughs) she knew though because i totally because that podcast has been on for at least a year and i was on prior to even coming up with this and i even i remember telling her basically saying i want this is the you know, i have an idea for something very similar to yours i hope you don't mind me sort of ripping you off and she was like no she's very very nice um no she's cool and uh, but i do recommend that show because it's it's um it's her and a rotating panel of people oh. talking about one and you so talked with not, her on a book i did too i've been on two episodes i was on the episode about macbeth and I was on the episode about poetry. We oh, talked poetry and yeah. we read poetry. So it's time. It is time. This it is, is time. Almost the favorite part of the episode. It is. It is because, with the exception of a few special episodes here and there, um, <laughs> we do not. We do not know what each oh, oh, other oh, oh. is. Yeah, right. You know true. that. Yeah, that we've, yeah. we've we've established our rules. So, um, do you want to? Are you supposed to ask me the question or? <laughs> Tom, what are we reading next month? You put it like that, Mabel. <laughs> I mean, goodness, I gave you all the intro you need, and you have to all right. Okay, okay. More. this is going to be fun for you to edit. What am I saying? You're not going to edit. Uh, yeah, this. I don't edit uh, anything. Give me a break. Okay, so next month, um, I'm going to keep it in England. <gasps> I'm going to go a little bit back to the very end of the 19th century, and I'm going to switch genres to science fiction. Okay. And everybody on TTF's ears are burning right now, and maybe they'll all listen to this because the book that we're going to be reading is H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. I have a very personal relationship. Could you read you read it before? No. The okay. radio program. The radio program. Yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll, yeah. But we're, we're uh, it's uh, it's a great. It's one of my. Favorite. This is uh, it's a novel that I first read when I was in um, fifth grade. Oh. So yeah, it goes by. I think that's when like men were finally erect, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't think you realize what you just said. <laughs> I meant standing straight. Shag up. just I think I think somebody has standing to go resuscitate Shag. Straight up. That's what I meant. Walking erect. Would that have been I think better? you should just step away from from that yeah, word. Yeah, I guess it's time. It's so yeah, so the War of the Worlds uh-huh. by H.G. Wells, yeah. and uh, and we'll be we'll be back in a month with that. And until next time, pew pew. May the force be with your brains. What? I don't know. I'm coming up with the weirdest things that I can think of. Obviously. Good night. <laughs>
Oh, man, thanks for listening. Maxim, why didn't you tell me before? Yeah, we did sometimes, but you never seemed close enough. How could we be close when I knew you were always thinking of Rebecca? How could I even ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. Whenever you looked at me or spoke to me or walked with me in the garden, I knew you were thinking, this I did with Rebecca and this and this. Oh, it's true, isn't it? You thought I loved Rebecca? You thought that? I hated her. carried away by her, enchanted by her, as everyone was. And when I was married, I was told I was the luckiest man in the world. She was so lovely, so accomplished, so amusing. She's got the three things that really matter in a wife, everyone said. Breeding, brains, and beauty. And I believed them completely. But I never had a moment's happiness with her. She was incapable of love, or tenderness, or decency. You didn't love her. You didn't love her. Do you remember that cliff where you first saw me in Monte Carlo? Well, I went there with Rebecca on our honeymoon. That was when I found out about her, four days after we were married. She stood there, laughing her black hair blowing in the wind, and told me all about herself. Everything. Things I'll never tell a living soul. I wanted to kill her. It would have been so easy. You remember the precipice? I frightened you, didn't I? You thought I was mad. Perhaps I was. Perhaps I am mad. It wouldn't make for sanity, would it? Living with the devil. <laughs> I'll make a bargain with you, she said. You'd look rather foolish trying to divorce me now after four days of marriage. So I'll play the part of a devoted wife, mistress of your precious mandolin. I'll make it the most famous showplace in England, if you like. And people will visit us and envy us and say we're the luckiest, happiest couple in the country. What a grand joke it'll be. What a triumph. I should never have accepted her dirty bargain. But I did. I was younger then and tremendously conscious of the family honor. <laughs> family honor. She knew that I'd sacrifice everything rather than stand up in a divorce court and give her away, admit that our marriage was a rotten fraud. You despise me, don't you? As I despise myself, you can't understand what my feelings were. Can you? Of course I can, darling. Of course I can. Well, I kept the bargain, and so did she, apparently. Oh, she played the game brilliantly. But after a while, she began to grow careless. She took a flat in London, and she'd stay away for days at a time. Then she started to bring her friends down here. I warned her, but she shrugged her shoulders. What's it got to do with you, she said. She even started on Frank. Poor, faithful Frank. Then there was a cousin of hers, 
A man named Favell. Yes, I know him. Came the day you went to London. Why didn't you tell me? I didn't like to. I, I thought it would remind you of Rebecca. Remind me? <laughs> As if I needed reminding. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.
Um, well, are you, are you all set? I'm already. You're you're bringing us in, okay. so. Oh, I thought you were leading this. No. I'm just kidding. All right, go go <laughs> ahead. I'll, I'll sit back and I'll let you. I'll let you do your thing. Uh, <laughs> thanks for giving me all that ammunition. Oh man. Okay. I just lobbed it up. Oh, you did, honestly. <laughs>